It's 500 years ago, and there's an evil genius, and his goal is to eliminate as much as he possibly can the whale population of the Earth. The problem is, of course, that whales live in the ocean, and they're hard to find and hard to hunt. What to do if your goal is to eliminate all the whales? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about side effects. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Drought-proof gardens has become my obsession here in the now all-too-fiery Pacific Northwest. It's become that since my nine-year-old son asked me what we can do for climate change, and I said everything we can, anytime we can, wherever we can. And this is one small thing. They're planters that make it easy to garden, and so you also get to enjoy a new hobby that can take a little bit of load off the water needs and give you a refuge in your own yard. Look up sub-irrigated planters. I hope this helps somebody do something good. Well, of course, if you want to get rid of all the whales, it helps to create an entire industry in which people get paid and raise their status and take care of their families by hunting whales. And so the thing to do, particularly in the colonies of, quote, the new world, is to wait until a whale ends up on a beach, cut it open and see that the baleen, the part that is used to filter things that it's eating, is a great way to make corsets and hoop skirts. To realize that the ambergris, which is collected in the intestines of the whale, is a great way surprisingly, to make perfume, but most of all, that whale oil is a terrific way to make a light inside a dark house at night. You could build an entire industry around whale oil, and once you do, one of the side effects is that whales around the world will be hunted to the edge of extinction. And then, if it's 1849, a few hundred years later, and you decide that you want to save the whales, well, one thing you could do is start a worldwide campaign to save the whales. The other thing you could do, if you're a Canadian who understands things like shale oil and coal, is invent kerosene. Because kerosene is cheaper and more efficient than whale oil, and you don't have to go to sea and chase down Moby Dick to get more of it. And so one of the side effects of kerosene, in addition to poor people around the world getting lung disease and having their homes burned down, is that the market for whale oil was completely decimated. I think we can agree whale oil as a technology was not developed because people other than Captain Ahab had a thing against whales. That was a side effect. Side effects are still effects. They are still real. There are still things that happen to us and to the things around us, but they're not the point of what we built. And the purpose of my rant today is to talk about an interesting side effect, possible side effect, occasional side effect of the world we live in, of the culture of capitalism and industrialism. And that side effect, unlike the decimation of whales, is something that we look forward to. And that side effect is, did we create something of beauty? Did we treat other people with dignity and respect? 
did we build something that was both resilient and at the heart of what we think about when we try to do good work? So let's look at some of the things that capitalism has created. People often talk about the extraordinary customer service that you might get at a place like Zappos, where a human being answers the phone on one ring, talks to you like they care, and takes good care of you. Or they talk about the extraordinary design of the early Macintosh, the user interface, Steve Jobs' obsession with edges and corners, paying Johnny Ive and others millions and millions of dollars for beauty, just putting beauty into a product even though, quote, they didn't need to, which led to a whole bunch of other capitalists deciding that beauty could become a competitive advantage. These people say that capitalism, left to its own devices, creates things like customer service, creates things like symphonies that we want to go listen to because the person who composed the symphony got paid to do so, or that create that object in your hand that feels better than it needs to, that supercomputer you paid $1,000 for. But I want to argue today that these are random side effects. That if we look, for example, at the houses that are built in places where there's plenty of wealth, most of them are pretty ugly. Most of them do not have the organic coherence, the soul-lifting beauty that we see in a house designed by an architect who really gets it. If we look at what has happened on social media, most of what is created is not something we would actually miss if it were gone. It was created because market forces amplified, came together to produce something that in the short run or locally doesn't actually help us. That Facebook has been in the news a lot because it's been found by Facebook that Instagram makes a third or more of the young women who use it unhappy. That is a side effect of Facebook deciding that what they need to do is do, quote, what the market wants. And the same thing was true with whale oil. At no point did the people who were out there whaling say to themselves, wow, I wonder if we could come up with a way to do this, to light our homes without hunting a species to the edge of extinction. Or consider the well-documented health issues that things like cigarettes or potato chips or carbonated beverages cause in the people who consume them. Have some people had a smile put on their face because they had a Coke on the right day with the right people and it reminded them of something that made them happy? For sure. But it's also true that millions and millions of people have died early and tragic deaths because of the effects of too much sugar and obesity. These are side effects of companies that say, we're just doing our job. And so when I got this question from a listener. Hi, Seth. This is Rich from New York. This question, it's about delivery, especially food delivery. There was, um, and this is New York City focused, there was an article about sort of the plight of delivery workers and how the quote-unquote algorithms have you know, run their lives and make it even harder and harder to make a living wage. It seems that these companies would go away or at least become much smaller as they have to raise their prices and price out probably many of the people, uh, many of the customers. And so there is no solution where the contract workers 
can earn enough to make a living wage and its service is cheap enough for customers to keep using it. There are people like Danny Meyer who have like a different approach where, you know, the employees, almost like employees are number one, because if the employees are happy, they can make the customers happy. And it seems to work at the smaller scale, um, but probably doesn't work to this larger scale of like the Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub. I guess uh, my question is, do you think there is a solution where we can offer this really cheap service while not exploiting the people delivering the service? Thanks. Is the purpose of Uber or DoorDash to make our communities better? Or are they hoping that that will be sort of a random side effect? That if the only way to get your business funded is to promise consumers something that you cannot sustainably deliver at the same time that you treat your employees respectfully and pay them a living wage, well, some people say the market has spoken. I have to do what I have to do because this is what industrial capitalism demands. Or do we say, well, then I'm not going to make that thing. One of the challenges that we have, perhaps one of the greatest challenges of our time as we stare down the barrel of carbon is this. Is the purpose of capitalism to create culture or is the purpose of culture to create capitalism? Is culture just a side effect of Milton Friedman's edict that the purpose of any company, that the purpose of work is to maximize returns for the owners? Because I think Steve Jobs was the exception, that he almost drove that company into bankruptcy more than once, pursuing something that the stock market didn't approve of until long after the fact. It was only an accident that the iPhone became the single most profitable device ever created by a company, but that's not what he wanted it to be. He was going for something else. It's pretty clear that Frank Lloyd Wright, or name your favorite famous architect, wasn't as successful as some anonymous corporation churning out ticky-tacky houses on the hillside. Because profit and beauty or dignity or resilience or long-term sustainability aren't in the same category. So here we have these companies, companies that maybe never should have existed, who made a promise to people that any person who could use a spreadsheet could show could not possibly be kept, not with human labor. And now they're saying, well, we are in a jam because we can't continue to keep our promise, delivering food in 20 minutes for less than it would cost you to get it yourself, unless we subject the people we are working with to conditions that we're not proud of, and then they're in a jam. Or if we think about some of the most successful, profitable companies of all time, how do they make choices? The original motto at Google was don't be evil. And according to one of their early employees, what don't be evil meant was don't be Microsoft. Because Microsoft at the time was suffering from the image of being a monopolist, of taking advantage of any entity if they could use their monopoly power to increase profit. And at the beginning, the Google folks said, we're not going to be like that. We're going to create a different kind of campus, a different kind of ethos, a different way of being in the world. But then we see one decision after another. The most recent one I read about last week. Oh, let's not pay thousands and thousands of contractors some bonus money, even though our contractor promised 
we would. And only when there was an uproar did they change their mind. But with all the money Google makes, why couldn't they have made a different decision a long time ago? We're not going to even have any contractors giving us deniability about treating different people differently when we could just have employees and treat them all fairly. We're not going to go ahead and try to take every penny off the table, but instead to create an ecosystem, a culture that allows the internet to truly thrive. That sooner or later, every company, particularly big ones that need to go public, needs to make a hard decision. And that decision is simple. Is the purpose of this organization to maximize the profit for the shareholders in the long run or the short run? Because there's not a lot of evidence that says that even if you're trying to do it in the long run, you can do it at the same time. You maximize the benefits to the culture, to customers and to non-customers, to the present and to the future. So back to that idea of the symphony. There are fewer and fewer symphonies getting written, at least the ones that I've seen across my desk, partly because there are fewer and fewer dukes and kings commissioning symphonies to raise their status among their peers. That it's not a good way to make a great living, and so it doesn't get done as much. And what we have to figure out as we think about our humanity and our role seems pretty simple to me. We need to figure out what impact we are trying to make with the work we do. How much is enough? Is it enough for someone to make 10 million or 50 million or 100 million dollars, a billion dollars, 50 billion dollars? At what point is the game of I can make more more important than the game of I can make a difference? Because we are surrounded by people who are trying hard to make a difference, but many of them are being overwhelmed by individuals who, choosing to win a game of status, are building systems with network effects, places like Facebook and Instagram, that don't exist to make things better and more resilient, but instead exist to get more clicks, which leads to more revenue. I think the folks at Facebook could have made a whole bunch of different decisions a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, before an American election and before that where they still would have made plenty of profit, but they wouldn't have had to look at what they did and say, oh yeah, we're sorry that happened. That everything we do creates effects and side effects. Some people have very little choice. They are struggling to put food on the table. But most people, including just about everyone who's listening to this podcast, we do have a choice. We have a choice to put our name on our work. And yes, we have the choice to not maximize our short-term profits and instead focus on the impact of what we do. I know I've been ranting lately. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run Akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. 
So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two good questions this week, plus a mysterious explanation. Here we go. What niche would you tell small business owners to keep an eye on in 2022 for ideas for their own purple cow? Thank you for this, Bonnie. My answer might not be what you're expecting. I'm not going to say plastics or something that might have come out of a movie in the 1960s or 70s. My thesis is that you pick your customers and you pick your future. Particularly for small business people, your customers determine what your day is going to be like. The second thing I would say is that the happiest entrepreneurs I know are not happy because they sell a thing that they themselves want to use. They're happy because they are engaged with traction for a marketplace of people they respect. One guy I knew was really happy with his business. He was a wholesaler of hardware, like screws and nuts and bolts and stuff like that. The thing is that it's not that interesting. There's just not a lot to say about stainless steel screws. But there's a lot to say about what it means to be a person of respect in a tight-knit community where folks trust you, where you solve their problem. So if I was starting anew today, that's where I would begin, not by saying what's hot or what's trendy, but by saying, who's out there? What's their psychographic, their attitude? Who has a problem with money to spend to solve it, that needs a thing and knows they need a thing? And if I was starting something today, I would focus almost all my effort, not on selling people stuff, Because as we've seen in the last few years, it's easier than ever to get stuff. It's easier than ever to lower the price of the stuff. It's harder than ever to get noticed, to get trusted, to get clicked on. And if you're competing with Amazon or you're competing with someone who's got a head start on Shopify or if you're competing with someone who's willing to race to the bottom on social media, your life isn't going to be what you want it to be. But what's underserved right now is connection, is engaging people with information and other people who need and want that information. A few years ago, I saw a community that organized more than 10,000 volunteer firefighters. And if you want to hang out with volunteer firefighters and you can connect them with each other, with new techniques, with new ways of learning, with new ways of being in the world, boom, that's a business. There are countless businesses like this. There's only been the last five or 10 years 
that human beings in the billions could find and connect with each other. Facebook isn't the answer. Facebook is the beginning of all of this, but it is unlikely that that's the end of it. So that's what I would do. I would focus on the smallest viable audience of people who care about something you care about, where you can create value by creating connection. Hi, Seth. In a talk you recently gave, you mentioned that people like us do things like this, which is a very elegant concept. But when I look around the world, very few people I know are doing things I do. In fact, I think a lot of people I know socially think I'm kind of crazy or a loser for not driving the fancy cars and buying the trendy things. We generally don't concern ourselves with what other people think of us. But in my industry, the most lucrative clientele are the ones that drive fancy cars and buy things they can't really afford. Since I don't display myself like them, how do I attract this more lucrative client set? How do I market to people who are not like us? Thank you for this. This is a really good question, and it brings to mind lots of things that I learned from Zig Ziglar. The thing is that if you walk into almost any hairdresser in America, the people who are cutting hair don't look exactly like the people who are getting their hair cut. They don't want the same things. They don't talk the same way. They might be a different demographic. They're different. There are lots of areas of our life where this is true where we want to do business with someone who isn't us, but who fits a different version of the story we are telling ourselves about where we get what we get, who we get it from. So yes, there are certain industries that have decided that the best way to fit in, and I'm thinking about real estate brokers right now, is to make sure you've got just the right Mercedes and just the right business card and just the right outfit and that your the name of your firm has the word team in it and your signs are all the same. But that's coming from fear. That's not coming because the people who are buying the houses look and act and drive like the people who are selling them. The other thing that's going on is you don't need everyone to be your client, whatever it is that you're busy trying to sell them. You just need a few people. So the question is, what's the story? I remember that there was a book years ago, Where Are All the Customers' Yachts? And what it was about, I believe, was the fact that certain kinds of brokers showed off just how much money they were making as a way to acquire new customers. It certainly worked for Bernie Madoff. However, it might be just as easy to have a niche of being the stockbroker who's got a hole in his shoe and doesn't live in the fanciest house in town because he or she is spending their money doing something else, something that really matters to them, something that might appeal to the people they seek to lead. And so what it means to be a leader is not that you are a slightly different version of the people you are leading. What it means to be a leader is that people see in you a story that resonates with them about affiliation, about status, about where they want to connect. It turns out that being a successful hockey player doesn't mean looking like a hockey fan. It means looking like a hockey player. And you have lots of choices about how to look, how to show up in the world, the story you tell, the trail you leave behind. I think you should pick one that resonates with who you want to be and who you want to attract. And finally, something about the Help Wanted episode I recently ran. It's a little long. 
I'm going to leave it here without comment, but I was absolutely fascinated. It makes sense to me. We'll see. Thanks for listening. Hi, Seth. This is Brian. Very much enjoyed your most recent podcast, Help Wanted. Uh, I've been following the Shackleton story, and I found uh, the discussion there very, very uh, enjoyable and enlightening. But really what I wanted to comment about, and I'm not sure that you'll necessarily want to post this comment uh, in a podcast, but I wanted to pass along nonetheless, really is with regard to the ad that you saw in the New York Times, in particular the ad uh, in that old classified section of a print newspaper looking for someone who clearly is very tech savvy, digitally focused, uh, and everything that you would not expect to find in a reader of a print ad in modern day classifieds. My suspicion, and I saw this actually in my work career, is that that help wanted ad was not really a help wanted ad at all, Uh, at least not in the sense that they were looking for qualified applicants. In fact, quite the opposite. We have many situations where we had uh, someone who had come to uh, our department from either an overseas office uh, and or who had we were looking to recruit from outside of the United States and that the firm would be, have to sponsor them for their work visa. Well, in order to do that, one of the requirements was to show that a particular applicant that you had in mind was the most qualified person available for that position. One of the things to do, one of the ways to do that would be to run help wanted ads and show that, well, look, guess what? I didn't receive any qualified applicants submitting their applications for that position. And so lo and behold, my person that I have in mind is the best for that position. You file that along with your visa application or sponsorship. Now, I don't know for certain whether or not that was the case for the ad that you mentioned, but I would mention that um, it certainly lined up with my experience. And I don't say this to be denigrating of uh, non-residents, non-U.S. citizens who are applying for these positions. Uh, my experience is has always been, uh, with a very, very few exceptions, uh, outstanding with these applicants and their performance. Um, but simply that the administrative requirements that are put into place in order for firms to hire these best people often drive very apparently silly behavior. And so I just wanted to kind of pass that along because I do see it as a roadblock to actually helping companies um, find the best applicants building the best teams, uh, and really doing all the things that uh, you talk about on your podcast and that I try to do every day, which is to build better teams, to do better things for everyone. So I'll just leave it there. Thanks so much, Seth. Really appreciate all that you do and uh, look forward to hearing whatever you have in the future. Thanks. Bye. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months, putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo 
listeners. I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.